what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one and we told him to fuck off and then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah. It's the odds are wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einswick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get. Pretty much. If you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I know. I see it. Me too. I see it. You're using his sewing machine. Yep. Playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all. Yeah. A shit website. Yeah. But now, now he's, he's got a working website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog Suticles, <laughs> the best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yep. it. It's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He did so much R&D, didn't he? Oh, huge. And yeah. the, the product is amazing. Yep. And so he's got one. training videos, everything showing. He trains and supports people how to get the dog into it, yep. how to make it safe, yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes. He's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stolen stole his stuff. Yeah. I stole a tug. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this. Yep. So I guess it doesn't count. But yeah. Mojo Doggy. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. Yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainer's shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah. High quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all the things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo. Get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino. Yeah, that yeah. sounds about Daniel right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South yeah. Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there, some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really, 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the dog, dog club. club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Dobeman doing his little course running around, but that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls balancing yeah. and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah, so we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're wonderful. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. Today is a special one. I'm at home. Glenn's at his house and joining us all the way from Chicago is old friend of the show, Chad Mackin. Chad, welcome. Thank you, guys. It's good to be back on the show. I've missed you guys a lot. We've missed you. So we just had a whole conversation that we now have to rehash. because. (laughs) (laughs) Where have you been? Why haven't we heard from you in so long? Well, I took a a long break off of social media for about 18 months. I was barely present on Facebook. Like I would open the app once every few days, scroll for a minute and go, ah, shut it off. I started building an Instagram account during that, that time period, but I had reached a point where it was no longer healthy for me to be really active on social media. My Instagram account was one safe spot because there's nothing on there, but dogs, music, and jujitsu, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't see anything I didn't want to see. I didn't. And even the dog people I follow is, is very, very few, very, very small. Mm-hmm. Like I can watch random people say the dumbest garbage about dogs and go, ah, whatever. But when I see somebody that I really like say something about dogs, that I even slightly disagree with. It upsets me. I go, wait, wait, that's you got. I want to, I want to get my hands in there and, and have that conversation. And of course I have, I've always for a long time, I've had a rule that I don't engage with other trainers on their professional pages in any way that's not supportive. There's a good meme that makes me think of what you just said then, Chad, it's a stick figure cartoon and there's a guy at the computer and you can hear his wife and well, read his wife in the background saying, honey, time to come to bed. And he goes, wait, there's somebody wrong on the internet. I think about that affectionately and frequently when I see a lot of stuff on social media. I'm a lot more critical more so than Pat is on what I see on social media because it's fatiguing watching and reading some of that stuff. And I just don't know how people have got the mental clarity and physical energy to have to put on that clown suit every day and hash out those same old routines. I saw something the other day which made all the hair and all the scales on my back come up when somebody was literally just post healing video after healing video after healing video And then somebody said, oh, check out this badass. And I'm thinking, did they run in a building and rescue children? What did I miss along the way? (laughs) When did healing become badass? Those sort of things. I understand that because I I walk away from it. I think, why is this affecting me? Why am I getting upset about it? What's worrying me so much about this? For me, it became stressful 
logging on to Facebook. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of pressure. You know, I had, I had reached a point where for a long time, especially when dog training conversations was running, I had a voice that really seemed to matter a lot to people. I never wanted to be a big deal. I never tried to become important. But then one day you wake up and you find, you know, that to a lot of people you are important, that your opinion does matter. And that is a very addictive drug. Mm. And then as that sort of cycle starts to fade and, you know, new people are coming in, there is a, a reflexive action to grasp for that again to try and get that back. And I want to, I want more of that. And I got to the point where I would watch when people would come on, would come onto a Facebook group and say, what are some good podcasts to listen to or good people to follow on Facebook? I would literally scroll through the comments to see whose name was mentioned more than mine. And, (laughs) and some of them, like it never bothered me when I saw you guys. It never bothered me when I saw Jay. You guys are awesome. Jay's awesome. And a lot of it was about who are the influencers these days. It's not just about like, it, there was a part of it. I'm not going to lie. There's a part of it that was ego driven. There's a part of it like, like I used to be in the top five of that list most of the time. And then I reached a point where I wasn't anymore. That did suck. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend that I'm above all that or, or I was above all that. But a lot of it was also who is steering the future of this industry? What are those voices saying? And some of them I agreed with and some of them I didn't agree with. And some of, the, some of them I thought were just kind of downright destructive. So eventually it just got to be too much. And I got COVID. And of course, there's a whole can of worms that goes along with that, you know, talking about that. So when I was sick with that disease, the thought of posting on Facebook, hey, guys, I got COVID. The thought of the absolute shit show that was going to fall after that of commenting and stuff it just depressed the hell out of me. <laughs> I just said, I'm not going on Facebook right now. And then I just didn't come back for a long time. So during that time, I was like, I told you guys, you know, right before we started, I was pretty happy just training my dogs, just doing my job. This little dog trainer in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, just helping people and their dogs get along better. And I was still developing my, my system and my techniques and my tools and, and my approach. And I was seeing a lot of stuff and I would sometimes go, you know, I should get out there and I should say this. And the question has always been, am I doing this to be relevant again? Or I'm doing it because I think it's valuable to the conversation. And I don't know that I can ever fully separate those two things. You know, I, I wish I was evolved above that, but it's nice to be appreciated. It's nice for people, especially your peers to go, hey, that was really good. I really like that. I don't know anybody who really has overcome that except maybe Jay, who just doesn't seem to really care that much. But I stayed away for a long time because I wanted to make sure when I came back that I had something worth saying and that I could say it from the place of I'm trying to build the community. I'm trying to help dog trainers. And that's more important than whatever, however I'm received. Dick Russell used to say to me way back in the day, you know, he'd been doing this. I don't know, 50 years or something like that at the time. And he said, I, I feel like I'm, I've, dog training has been very good to me. And I feel like I'm at that give back point. And I think truly, I feel like at this point in time, I just celebrated my 30th anniversary last month. Last month was my 30th anniversary of the first professional contract I ever took as a dog trainer. And I feel like I'm at that give back point. So my return to Facebook has been a lot less stressful. Even when I, when people disagree with me, I, I'm much better at just going, ah, they don't get it or they don't agree with me. And that's fine. I don't have to prove my point. I don't have to bicker about these things. And it's been a much healthier process this time around. So I'm happy to be back. It's been fun. I've, I've been developing a lot of stuff over the, 
that time, a lot of what I'm doing now, I showed the seeds of when I was there in Australia doing that tour with Jay, like especially with the leash. Like I was trying to demonstrate something new with the pressure and release system that I was doing at the time and it didn't land. I was aware that it didn't land, but I wasn't aware of how much it didn't land until at some point later on down the line, it was either you, Pat, or Jay was talking about it. I think it was Jay, but I'm not sure. But one of you was describing it and said that, you know, Chad added food to his pressure release system and he's calling that pressure release 2.0. And I'm like, that wasn't the big, that wasn't, that wasn't what I was trying to show you guys. And I realized that if you or Jay, and I think it was Jay, I'm 90% sure it was Jay, but if one of you two missed that, especially Jay, because he knows me as well as anybody in the world, missed what I was trying to say, then I just was a terrible teacher. I didn't have a way to frame it in a way that it made sense to people. But now I have a whole way of describing all of that. And because one of the things I do right now, the, the most popular program I have right now is a day board or day training program where they drop the dog off in the morning and they pick it up in the afternoon twice a week and they shoot a video for them. And that video is their homework. So I have my camera set up on a tripod in the corner of the room. So you'll see almost all the videos I shoot, I put up online are from the same angle because that's where my tripod sits. Mm-hmm. And I walk around the room and I train the dog. I have a lavalier mic on, the little radio pack on my belt. And I just talk out loud. I mean, I write what I'm doing to myself. And that forces me to describe things in a way that you don't have to do when you're just in the zone working with the dog. Because mm. you're teaching while you do it and you have no idea. You get no feedback from somebody. When you're teaching one-on-one, you're looking at people seeing if they're nodding or if they're if they're looking at their face to see if they're getting it and you can see that blank look and you go, okay, let me try a different tactic. I don't have any of that. I got no feedback. So I have to keep trying to say it in a way that makes sense. And of course this program doesn't include private lessons. If people want them, the goal was to make the private lessons unnecessary. So one of the ways I measure my success is how often people ask for private lessons. So I have been able to, through that process to really spend a lot of time getting my teaching chops down in a way that I can present material that most people, regardless of their background or their experience or their knowledge can go, oh, that makes sense. And then replicate it at home, at least reasonably so. So now I have all of these cool things that I'm doing, the way I'm layering the leash and the treats together. And it's a weird thing about the leash too. You know, Jay has been on me for years saying he wants me to teach the original pressure release system that I started teaching back in like uh, 2010 or whatever. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm not a legacy act like that. I'm developing. I'm not a a nostalgia band. I'm still making new albums, right? But it's weird because since a little bit before I went to Australia, I've been getting more into motivational and food-based training and the leash has factored less and less in everything I do. Like I'll do whole sessions where I don't apply any leash pressure. The leash is just there as a safety or, or to prevent, as I say to my clients, to prevent a mistake from becoming a tragedy. And there's other times that I'm using it a whole lot in a lot of real subtle ways. And, and it's weird to have once been the leash guy, not the leash guy, but a leash guy, like, like mm-hmm. a, a big voice in how leashes are used. And then they look at my work and go, wow, I don't really use it as much as I used to. But then have this realization also that when I do use it, there is a lot of thought that goes into how it's used. And there's a lot of development in that system. It's like having a really, really, really complex system for braking on a car that really comes into play when that car is getting out of control. Otherwise, you don't notice it. And so it's a small part of what I do, but it's an essential part is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. So that's one of the things that I've been putting together. And 
You're saying too many things. We've got to unpack some yeah. of this. We've got to, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we've got sorry. to go back. I want to ask you about the way that you've sort of changed as a trainer. And then I want to do want to go back and sort of discuss some of the things around social media and things that you sort of brought up then. You know, listening to you talk and discussing how, you know, you really were in the pressure and release with the lease and you've developed to include more food, more motivational based stuff. And, you know, you land now wherever you do for the dog that's in front of you. What are the metrics that makes you feel like that's more successful? Like, what is it when you look at yourself as a trainer now versus, I think what you said, you, when you were teaching the stuff in 2010 or whatever, what is it that when you look at a session that makes you go, I'm better now than I was then? What is the measurable data from that? The biggest piece of measurable data is the lack of vacant stairs. Like I, I can explain, explain things quickly and I can show somebody a real simple technique and then they can do it right away with very little extra coaching. This week I had a lesson with somebody who actually used to train with me down in Texas and she's got family up here and she was up here and she's like, can I get another lesson with you? So she hasn't worked with me. I've been up here for over a decade now. You know, she hasn't worked with me in like 12, 13 years or something like that. I don't know that exactly, about 12 years, I say. And different dog, we go out in the field and work with the dog and I'm showing her things. And she was like, wow, you've changed a whole lot. This is really, this is really, but it, I had to unpack things that she was doing. That was stuff that I used to teach. And of course mm -hmm. that stuff was good. That stuff was good, but this stuff was better. And she was like, wow, I made so much progress so quickly. This is really nice. So it's things like that. But largely it's, it's just that like being able to not have people look confused the problem with the original style of pressure release is it is so dependent on feel. It's so mm -hmm. dependent on being able to listen with your hands. Like you feel the dog's weight shift subtly, you give them that active release. And that is, that's a finely tuned response. And it's not something that you get. It's like things, one of the analogies I use a lot is if understanding was all it took to succeed, no one would ever lose Simon Says. <laughs> right. We all know, like I can tell you how to do it, but until you develop the feel, until you develop that responsiveness, you're not going to be good at it. And so mm -hmm. there's a deep learning curve on getting really good with that pressure release system the way that I originally started teaching it. And what I was trying to do with that, what I was calling pressure release 2.0 there when I was you know, in Australia, I was trying to take the need for that feel out of it to show a method that, requ that doesn't require you to be a, an artist with the leash, but allows you to be sort of more of a technician to follow the process, right? And again, it didn't land. I didn't explain it clearly enough. And that just kind of went over everybody's head, unfortunately. That's my fault as a teacher. Nobody else's fault. I completely own that. But I spent several years trying to figure out how to explain it. And I tried a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different ways. And none of them seem to be very effective. What I'm on now is working and people are getting it. They're like, oh, and I can show it to them and they can go, oh, wow. And with my past student, the only real coaching I had to give her after explaining it to was gentle. Be more gentle. Mm. Be more. <laughs> and, and I actually had to show her, I had to have her, have her hold the leash and demonstrate the motion I wanted her to do. Those were her words. You know, she's a gentle, Thea, gentle. I get it. So, uh, okay. Man, so, it's funny you say that. I've had that similar conversation with quite a few people about more sort of compulsion-based training or, you know, like pressure and release based, using more negative reinforcement, essentially, how there is a feel to that. And to be successful doing it, I think that people who are successful, once you understand it, it's great. It works exceptionally well. It gives clarity and understanding to the dog. But there is always the risk that, you only know when you've put too much pressure on a dog, when you observe that you've put too much pressure on a dog. And from that dog that you've done that with, you then have to remember those signals, see those signs and apply that to the next dog. And like, that's just mm -hmm. reality. And it's not like we're talking 
crushing a dog, but you might dip into a little bit Mm -hmm. of demotivation or you might accidentally teach the wrong behavior. And I think that's one of the tricky things of negative reinforcement is when that pressure comes off, the dog has its learning moment. And if the learning moment is significant enough, maybe the dog never needs another one and continues to demonstrate the behavior that you accidentally taught or didn't want the dog to think because he continues to believe that he's avoiding that pressure that he once escaped. So like all those things are the extreme examples, but I think that's why people get so much more confident in the use of or the teaching of positive reinforcement-based techniques only because the mistakes aren't anywhere near as observable. And I think that like, of course you can train the wrong thing. Of course you can totally do that. But at worst, you just sort of aren't very successful. Like, I think that's what we see a lot of the time, like with people who are trying to just teach and just stick with positive reinforcement techniques is when they're not good at it, it's just that the dog doesn't really get trained. But when you're not good with negative reinforcement, that the consequences can be more significant. I think, what do you think about that? I think when we talk about the kind of pressure release that I'm talking about using, the, the leash work that I'm trying to use, I don't know where it fits in the quadrants, to be honest with you. Like, like I used to say, they're seeking slack, not avoiding pressure. Because mm-hmm. uh, I always viewed slack as, as a reinforcement. But I actually have part of the foundation of my new system, which I didn't have when I was in Australia before. But I have a whole exercise that I do that is about teaching the dog that turning off pressure is what creates the reward. Mm-hmm. So it is literally, it's, it's very neat popo in a sense, but it's not something I've seen anyone else do. You know, Jay has his pop treat, uh, the, the conditioning to leash pops. And that may have been an inspiration for this, what I do, but it's, it's very different. So the basic idea is I call it look, leash, treat. So I start the, getting the dog playing a follow me game with positive reinforcement. I'm moving backwards. He's chasing me. He catches me. Yes. Reward to move backwards. He chases me. He catch. I'm facing him. He's facing me. Right. And then at some point in time, I, th- I throw a treat away from me, go get it. He gets it. When he looks at me, he starts moving towards me in a chase game. I just slightly add the leash pressure as he's coming in. Mm-hmm. So the leash is now complementing his effort, not contradicting it. Like mm-hmm. almost everyone, when they start teaching the leash, they're teaching it in an oppositional way. Mm-hmm. This way, the dog literally turns the leash on by looking at me, mm-hmm. right? By moving towards me, he turns the leash on. And then he turns it off when, when he gets close to me. So he's learning the pressure tells him where to go to get the reward, mm-hmm. which is what good leash work should be. It's telling him where we want him. We're not making him. So he's learning from that exercise that the pressure is a valuable information. It's still negative reinforcement in the sense that he's turning it off on purpose. Mm-hmm. He knows the job is to turn it off, but he's also starting it. He's initiating that sequence. And I think that's a really, that, that's a piece of the pre-foundation that has been missing, was missing from my work. And I don't know anybody else. Who's, they, I, I'm not claiming that I'm the only guy who's ever done this. I'm just the only guy I've ever seen, do it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a huge part of it. And when I tell most trainers about it, they go, oh, that sounds interesting. But when I, I did a little beta of my new leash workshop for my GRC club, and when people started doing it, they went, oh my God, this is really good. Mm-hmm. When you feel how much more quickly you get responsiveness to the relation, how much your touch lightens. When you start Mm -hmm. doing that, people go, oh, so if the dog is turning off the pressure because the absence of pressure means there's an additional reward, I don't know if that fits in negative reinforcement or not. Honestly, I don't fucking care. Like, Mm. I don't care what we call it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like that, like let people who are smarter than me deal with how to label that shit. I can tell you the dog is turning that pressure on, on purpose and turning it off on purpose. And uh, by the way, as a little side note, I do the same thing with e-collar. When I do mm-hmm. e-collar, it's look, tap, treat, mm-hmm. look, tap, treat. So the dog chooses to turn that e-collar on and turn it off. 
And yes, I'll make my confession here, my public confession. I do use low level recaller with food <laughs> reinforcement. I fit in that category. So you're on that team. Uh, I'm on that team. And I still think I'm a real trainer, even though I do that. Man, I think there's a lot of value to that kind of work. Like I think the example I was taught in that sort of giving that motivational pop when the dog is already on the way to do the behavior. Example to me in human terms is, you know, when you see a football player is going to sub in soccer, especially you're not allowed onto the field to the other guys off. And you see the coach with his hand on the shoulder of the sub standing there and the sub shows full intent. It's not like he's not going to go onto the field. He's stamping his feet. He's ready to go. He wants to go mm-hmm. onto there and accompanying the command. Like, okay, you're allowed to go on is the tap on the shoulder as he does it. It's that sort of giddy up as he goes out. And and mm-hmm. like when I understood it like that, that's what really held it, made it fall into place. Mm-hmm. And the final piece that sort of helped me understand that was this idea that you're playing a game of that. So like when you do, in, in the instance where you say, well, you throw the food away and the dog eats it and on his way back, you give him the tap. Well, if he's fast, he'll beat that tap. And that tap is not in a way that like is demotivating or you're compelling. And you are, because if he did choose not to come, you would, he is on the leash, right? Like he, he would hit mm-hmm. the end of the line and, and he's not allowed to escape. But we're hoping at this point that he already is coming back. But the times that he doesn't is where exactly as you say, it's that extra reward where, where he doesn't feel the tap is because he went so fast. And doing it with a leash gives you the opportunity to uh, the dog to read your body language and stay cued in with you. I think it'd be interesting to see when you do teach this about the e-collar part, because what I've always found difficulty with that is you're cheating, you know, like it's not a real game anymore because uh, with the leash, the dog really can beat you. He can read your body language. He can move faster than you can pop the leash. And there is an opportunity to actually win the game. Whereas like with the e-collar, something I've found is when you teach people this kind of stuff that if they're a little bit too happy on the buttons, they sort of stim the dog almost every time. And it doesn't cause a big issue, but it just means that the dog's like, well, we're not really playing the game, mate, because you do it every time. And there's no way for me to actually avoid that. My thinking is a little different. It's uh, the dog's job isn't to avoid the tap because I'm going to keep moving backwards with the leash. He's going to chase me. I tell mm-hmm. my clients they have to move backwards or they can't do it because the dogs are too fast, right? So the thing is, is they turn the pressure on. It's not a tap. It's a steady pressure with the e cars tap, 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 right? It's steady pressure until they catch me. I don't want them to try to avoid it. I want them to try to end it. Like it's mm-hmm. not a competition. It's cooperative, not competitive. Okay. Like, I'm helping you. I'm helping you. Come on in. They have no reason to avoid it. And after a few minutes of that, if I just literally, if my dog is like healing, like just a step behind, I can just with two fingers, just kind of tap the leash and they'll come right up. They become very sensitive to it very quickly because it's telling them, it's giving them information they want. Mm-hmm. By the way, if I'm doing this game and the dog stops coming towards me and starts wanting to get distracted, I turn the pressure off. I'm not going to compel them to come with that leash. They are cooperative in this all the way through. Okay. This is another thing that's so important to me right now in, in the way I'm thinking about dogs. And this you know, you probably inspired some of this when we were talking about Nipo Po in the sense that, you know, you want early on the dog to think he's getting away with something like mm-hmm. letting Remy steal treats out of your pouch and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the things I tell my clients all the time is, is stop worrying about telling the dog what you want. Let the dog discover what he wants, mm-hmm. right? The dog doesn't need to know that he's doing the thing that I want him to do if he does the thing I want him to do. He has to be doing what he thinks he wants to do. And I just want to orchestrate the, the, the training session. So what he wants is aligned with what I want. Mm-hmm. In this case, I become his helper. I'm showing him how to win the game. I'm the coach. I'm not the adversary in this mm-hmm. game. I'm showing him how to win the game. So later on, when we do elevate to a, a corrective level, if we have to, if we elevate to that corrective level, the dog completely understands what's expected. 
and what that leash means and how to turn it off. So if the pressure becomes unpleasant, he still knows how to turn it off. Mm-hmm. Like the video that you did about the low-level e-collar, mm-hmm. you know, and you made that distinction that when the dog understands the game, that becomes a motivator, not a demotivator. And I think that's super true. And that probably also influenced my thinking on that too. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of pieces in this, but that little foundation thing is super, super valuable, I think, for a lot of what I do. And that has been one of the big game changers to my leash work. Not all of them, but that, it makes everything so much easier. And it's not hard to do. And it's fun to do. People like it, yeah. dogs like it. They get a lot of food and nobody feels like they're doing shit to their dog they don't want to do. <laughs> so I think that's the key to training, right? Like when everybody's into it, handler, dog, everybody's having a good time in the session. Mm-hmm. The learning moments just flow out really quick. And the, the cooperation comes in really fast. And very quickly, everybody's choosing to do the things that make everybody else happy just quite naturally. And, and they mm-hmm. live happily ever after. And then, then we get to the point where I have a, I'll have a handful of food in my left hand and the leash in my right. And I'll just lean on the leash a little bit, right? Just a little pressure. And the dog is looking at the food in my hand. He knows it's there and a little bit of pressure, a little bit of pressure. And as soon as he looks at my, at the pressure, I reward with the, from the opposite side. So I want to teach him, trust the leash, not your eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the tests I do to see. It. And, and sometimes it, after a few minutes, it's really easy. Other times I have to do it for, a long time before I get there. But it's like a diagnostic that tells me when the dog is really getting, that the leash is more important. The leash is the clue, not the food. Okay. Getting into the whole leash pressure discussion that you've circled around with, Chad, especially for the army of pet dogs that are out there, which is, again, you know, I've been saying it since the dawn of time, is that there is a endless supply of pet dogs coming through the market all the time. I find... And to switch back to earlier when you were talking about relevancy in the industry, I find that one of the biggest teaching moments for all of those people out there is proper leash pressure, how to walk a dog, how to enjoy a walk with a dog and not be at heel all the time because it's so impractical. I sound like a broken record sometimes when I say this, but back in my earlier times when I was a younger guy doing a lot more dog training than what I'm doing these days, the whole of Australia was literally all about if a dog's by your side, it's at the heel position. It was an old form of training which carried over a lot, especially a lot from the UK. I think we were heavily influenced back then by UK dog trainers more than we were with European. I know UK is part of Europe, but it was more. Don't tell them yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, especially <laughs> but that they went through Brexit. But I think what we started to find as we started to creep into the 2000s was the Europeans and the Americans were starting to influence us a lot more through the dog sport side of things to start seeing things looking nicer and a bit prettier in what they were doing. And it wasn't that good work wasn't coming through the UK. It was just our translation of it during the time. So being an island, you know, in the middle of the Pacific, we were just going off our own tangents and exploring our own ways. But back then, what we did find was healing was crushing motivation. It was absolutely destroying the desire of dogs to want to work with owners even though we were working a lot more with law enforcement dogs, we still had people that wanted to teach their dogs healing. Rather than teaching that healing was something that should be highly enjoyable, highly motivational, we were crushing the dogs with it. It was just way, way too much. So that's when the concept of social walking came up, which was allowing the dog, and I'm going to use the word being at liberty, teaching the dog that the dog could be at liberty to a degree However, the only aspect was teaching the dog that it could not pull on the lead. So that's where we coined the phrase teaching for abstinence. 
So it was a behavior that the dog was going to do anyway. It was going to start pulling on the lead and we had to teach it to abstain from that behavior. So leash pressure and social walking or whatever name that you want to actually give it these days, leash pressure walking or whatever, I find it's one of the most relevant training systems that anybody can get into even for people who are involved in sports, because if they're thinking, oh, no, I wouldn't do this because my dog's a sport dog, it's specific to it. That's an absolute load of bullshit because that dog still needs to go for at liberty walks. That dog still needs to have experienced freedom and yet not yank the owner on and pull it into traffic or pull it towards another dog or another person, et cetera, et cetera. That dog still needs to work out what it's like to walk down a street and still have an element of control there. I find that we're limited in tacticians who know how to actually teach people how to do that properly because a lot of times now the focus is on teaching the quick sits, the fast heels, spinning into positions and so forth, which is beautiful. And there's no criticism for me about that at all. When I watch a skilled trainer teaching that type of work and I watch millions of people now who are teaching everything from chihuahuas all the way up to Great Danes, this beautiful, beautiful work, which is getting better and flashier and flashier as it goes along. That's lovely. But there still has to be relevancy in street work. There still has to be relevancy in when you're not at club and when you're not in your in your shed doing your work or in, when you're not on a field doing competition work. There still has to be relevancy in living with that dog and moving that dog from location to location. When we're talking about the people who are doing the pretty work, the flashy work and so forth, we're talking about a very small percentage of people. The vast majority of dog owners are mums and dads with limited time and probably 2.5 kids or whatever the demographic say it is, and they've got a dog and they need to learn how to control it and love that dog and not fall out of love with that dog. And that's where relevancy comes into trainers to be able to translate that idea of what it looks like how you can keep that dog safe in that house without them starting to have the conversation of, "Mm, this is just getting into a a bit of a wrecking ball situation. It doesn't fit in the backyard anymore. It's knocking the kids over. We can't walk the dog. We just can't enjoy the dog. That's where I really find some of these skills and definitely other attributes of what we talked about before, you know, nice sits, drops, stays in positions, everything like that. But especially, especially the loose leash walking, I still find it's one of the biggest I'm such a huge advocate for it today because as soon as you show the owner of dogs who are coming to you with a problem, as soon as you can resolve that one, that's the first time the flicker of hope lights back in their eyes and they look at you and go, wow, something changed. Now my dog can walk nicely again. There is hope. Now I can build on the top of this. And if you're lucky, they'll get bitten by the bug and they'll want to come back and they'll want to learn the next thing. And then maybe they might want to transgress over to doing the nice flashier stuff. But at least if you can start them on the right path with that one exercise, how to walk nicely on the lead, that's the opening of a whole Pandora's box, which really explodes nicely into the anticipation of how to live with a dog and how to enjoy that dog in the family once again. It's an audio medium, so the people couldn't see me vigorously nodding my head to everything you were saying, but I was nodding up and down the whole time. One of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, there was an explosion uh, probably five or six years ago of people getting into pet dog trainers. Actually, I try to say family dog trainers now. I moved away from the term pet dog because I think that's that is one of the things that stigmatizes the people who just work with family dogs. Like family dog is important. A pet dog sounds like an object, but a family dog is. Can I just say something there, mate, on that stigma that people are feeling about being a pet dog trainer? 
I have to say this with compassion towards all of those people is they're the big heroes out in the dog training world because they're saving the vast majority of dogs that are out there. They're doing the slug work that nobody else really wants to do because mm-hmm. it, it's not pretty work. You're not going to get Instagram famous from doing pet dog work because it's the same thing over and over again. It's very routine orientated. It doesn't look pretty but it's the essential stuff. It's the stuff that keeps dogs in homes. And really, if your ethos is about, I'm in this because I love dogs, these people generally are, you know, like they're the ones that experience burnout faster than anybody else because they're doing the same thing over and over again. And as I said, it can look boring, but the importance of it, the relevancy of it is so huge. Like it's the one thing that makes big, big differences. It doesn't mean that anybody else is not relevant or they're not important because they all are. When you look at the role and application of people in military service working dogs and people who enjoy and love sports and are doing that, all of these people love their dogs. All of these people fit into a category of I'm in it for some magnificent reason of forming a relationship with my dog. And then, of course, you've got the people that aren't. You know, they're in it entirely for themselves. They just sit in a category of it's just me and it's all about me and my ego. But the overwhelming majority of people that I know that are in the dog world are in it for all the right reasons. They're in it to educate people. They're in it to show people how to get better. They're in it to show people how to build and sustain bond and develop that family atmosphere Even the sports dog people that I know, you know, like they've still got to teach the dog to live in the house, like Pat with Remy, you know, like he's got one child that's, how old's the little fella now? Rib's like seven and a half and And Axel's like one and a half. One and a half, yeah. So you've got little kids in a house roaming around with a, a highly trained dog and having their friends around, but that dog still sits and adapts and has kids around there where they're putting party hats on his head and doing all sorts of things with him and having activities in the lounge room. And that dog's totally at at peace with his life. And those sort of things shouldn't be taken for granted. There is a massive debt that we owe all sorts of trainers who teach people how to have an amazing and a better relationship with their dogs, hands down. I agree with that 100%. That's that's again why I try to say family dogs, because dogs are family to me and to the people I work with. I've had a long-standing rule for a long time that I I won't work with an outside dog. If your dog lives outside, I'm not helping you because I can't. Because the, the methods I'm going to use are going to require you to have a real bonded relationship with that dog. And if your dog's you know just left outside until somebody comes and feeds them, it's not going to work. But about five or six years ago, a lot of the family dog trainers got into doing a lot of work, really started getting into precision. And started to hear, hear us saying, you know, we need to learn from the sport dog trainers. Like People will say all the time, sport dog trainers and pet dog trainers have a lot to teach each other. But what they really mean when they say that, if you watch the conversation carefully, is pet dog trainers need to be learning more from sport dog trainers. I have never seen a top of a sport dog trainer talking about the the pet dog trainer they go to study with. I never hear somebody saying, oh, this guy should go work with this family dog trainer because he's it would make him a better trainer. It's, it, it's a one-way street in the way people talk about it. And that's fine. Like I'm not I'm not complaining about it. But what I think has happened is recently I've been getting contacted by a lot more trainers who have been doing a lot of precision work with their clients' dogs and with their own dogs, and they're still struggling to solve a lot of the lifestyle problems that are coming up because what they're doing isn't reaching that part of the dog. And it's simultaneously that I'm starting to see a lot more of the older style of balance starting to pop up on my social media feeds. I'm seeing more and more old school trainers. You're seeing more and more words like phrases like holding the dog accountable and that sort of thing and just train the dog 
there's nothing wrong with either of those concepts, right? There's nothing wrong with holding a dog accountable. There's nothing wrong with saying we just need to train the dog. But those are often code words for you just need to use a little bit more pressure. Coming up in that system, coming up in in a world where that was normal training, where food was considered you know taboo, and we talked about building dogs' character and making them. I remember I used to have to tell people sometimes, I'm not here to be your dog's friend. I'm here to make him better. If he has to hate me to live a better life, I'm okay with that. The truth is, guys, I was never okay with that. It always crushed me a little bit when when I would touch the leash and I'd see the dog kind of shut down. It always crushed me. And I would tell myself that that was okay because I was helping the dog. But what I understand now is what I was doing and what I think a lot of us were doing at the time, whether we knew it or not, I certainly didn't know it, was we were engaged in a training program that was designed around making mistakes cost a lot. Mm. Mistakes were high risk. And when you realize that mistakes are high risk, you're grading the test against guessing, right? The dog's not going to guess. So the dog stopped doing all this bad shit, not because he had character, not because he was uh, more stable. It was because he had decided he just wasn't going to do anything that wasn't expressly allowed. That's not a dog living his his fullest life. I fooled myself into believing that's what I was doing. And I'm starting to see that come back. I'm starting to see that because one of the things when you're working with a dog in the precision that's necessary for a sport and, you know, I make no pretense that I am the guy to talk to about that stuff. Like if you want to train a dog for IGP, PSA, French training, even AKC obedience, I'm not your guy. 100% there are better people at that than I am. And there's probably better people at everything than I am, but that's not my area of specialty. But when I know enough about to know this, when you're training a dog for sport, everything is from a petitive mindset. The dog is going towards something, right? There's corrections. You want them to avoid the correction. Like you want to, you, you say you're going to correct them for a sloppy sit or for whatever. There is a correction. There is an avoidance of a consequence, but that's all part of the bigger game. They're still trying to win that game. They still have a goal in mind. They're going for that bite or they're going for that dumbbell or they're going for whatever. They have an objective that they're trying to reach. And in the family dog, when you're just living with a dog, you don't get to decide what their objective is in that moment. You don't have the ability to regulate their environment that much. And so what's happening, I think, is a lot of times that effort that people are putting into getting the dog very focused on a single goal and able to overcome all sorts of obstacles to make that goal successful and navigate all of the ins and outs of the precision that's required to get that goal. That's not the same skill necessarily as being able to make a good decision when nobody's telling them what to do. And the old school training excelled at that because they just taught the dog not to do anything that wasn't expressly okayed. And where we are now is we're in a position where people are are finding out that precision work they're doing isn't producing a dog like Remy who can live with kids. It's not producing that. And they're looking for an answer. And there's this old school training method going, hey, over here, we've always had this answer. And I don't think it's, and they do have an answer. I don't think it's the right answer. And Mm -hmm. I think this is a critical time for us as trainers because people are starting to see that the sport dog training doesn't do everything we needed it to do. It does a lot. And let me tell you, since I have gotten in, less people think I'm shitting on sport dog training. I'm not like, since I've gotten in more into precision, I become so much of a better trainer. Like the things you were talking about, Pat, noticing 
when a dog's attention or motivation flags a little bit, you won't ever notice that in old school model. Mm-hmm. You're not looking for a driving response. You're looking for a correct response. Mm. But when you're going, I want the dog to, I, I've got a dog I'm working with right now. This dog is driving me fucking nuts. I love this dog. She is such a timid girl. She is such a timid girl. And whenever we start working with her, she shuts down a little bit. And I've never been heavy handed with her. It's the social pressure. Mm. It's the social pressure that just the fact that I want her to do something is causes her confidence to like in my old school training, I've been happy with everything she gives me. I would have been happy with everything she gives me and their owners are happy. They do a maintenance thing with me. They keep buying packages because they don't want to, they don't really want to work with the dog that much. So they just figure if they have a professional work the dog twice a week, she'll stay pretty good. And they're happy. They always tell them, you know, I'm, she wasn't what I wanted her to be today. And they're like, she's great. What are you talking about? That's just her. She's just, but because I'm so interested in one of that motivated response, you makes you read the dog way better. It forces you to. So I'm not saying you shouldn't learn that stuff, but I'm saying that that stuff needs to be part of a bigger picture of what, where do you want that dog to be every day? You know, another thing I say is impulse control is impulse control, right? Like if, if you do a bunch of bench presses, you can do more pushups. If you do a bunch of pushups, you can do more bench presses. They're not the same exercise, but they're building the same muscle. And impulse control is that muscle. And good obedience is about building impulse control in a low stakes environment. Mm-hmm. If I'm telling a dog to hold a sit, and they break the sit, the worst thing that happens is I put them back. No, 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 come on, get back, right? Maybe at a higher level, I might give them a little leash correction, but at that point in time, that shouldn't be a big deal to them. Maybe they miss out on a treat. But if they run after a bird that they see across the street, that could kill them. Mm. So that's a high stakes environment. So obedience allows us to practice impulse control in a low stakes environment and build those skills. But the skill isn't sitting. That's not the skill I'm building. The skill is giving a moment before you choose to act. Yeah. That's the skill I'm building. And that's a completely different thing. I think just as well, wiring the dog to find value in the advice that you give it. I think that like, no matter what kind of training that you're doing, that's the happy side effect of any kind of training, whether it is teaching the dog to live comfortably with you in the house or training the dog for high level obedience, whatever think that through doing that, you're teaching the dog about boundaries and consequences and where there's value, where there's no value, all those kinds of things. And just developing a, a language and a trust where when you tell the dog one day, hey, don't chase that. He goes, yeah, okay. I've understood when you've told me not to do things in the past. I understand that it's in my interest to take your advice, both because something good could happen to me as well as something I don't like could happen to me if I don't take your advice. And so I will, because we created a fake scenario where the stakes were low and we could communicate that to the dog. Thinking as you were talking, mate, I think that I probably put myself, I I still deal in a lot of different dogs. I I deal with whatever people come to me with, but I probably am more of a, I I don't know about sport, but sort of for the majority of what I do is more of the precision stuff. Like I'm coaching people who want to pass some kind of test with their dog. That's typically what I, I do. And I think what is missing from a lot of that is the space between the sessions I'm in the process at the moment, I'm making a whole new online course. I'm renting a whole facility and I'm going to film all this stuff. And a big part of that, one of the like major drivers of me actually having to get a, a, a studio to film all this in and set that up as a, as a home kind of setup is I really want to show for a, a sport dog or for any dog really, but the space between the sessions, like this is what we're doing. Cause like, you know, the way that I train a dog, it takes an hour a day maximum. 
And, but like, it's alive for the other 23 hours of the day and you got to do something with it at that time. And you're not keeping it in the crate for 23 hours, you know, so, or you shouldn't be. And I think that's what a lot of people do when they only look at the, the instructional content that's available on how to train those specific things. Because, and I'm guilty of this as well. Like say at my club, for example, when people come with the dog, and they say like, I'm having issues in the home. I'm kind of like, that's none of my fucking business. <laughs> like that's none <laughs> of my, like, I don't want to hear it. You come to me here. I'm giving you my time to get your dog obsessed with certain things and understanding how to down correctly and hold the positions and all of that kind of stuff. And then people say, oh, but he's wrecking stuff in the house. I'm like, that's a you problem. That's none of my fucking business. And for clients, like if, if someone then comes to me and says, I'm having this specific issue, I know how to fix it. I know how to explain that to them. But I do compartmentalize those things for sure. And I think that you're dead right. There isn't really much available that I've seen that is the holistic approach. And especially in raising a dog. I think that's the main thing is like, especially, you know, we say a lot with puppies is just build them, build them, build them, but don't try and teach them anything too much. Like that, that's a big mantra that I and many other people have is just build confidence, socialize the dog. But then eventually, and you know, let that put a harness on that dog and a flexi leash and let that dog drag you around. But we never say when to stop that. You know, then people will contact me at six months and be like, oh, you know, going good, except my shoulder's fucked because my dog's dragging me around everywhere. And I'm like, well, stop it. That window on the value that you're getting from that closed two months ago. Why are you still allowing that? And they're like, well, you didn't tell me to stop. So I think you're dead right. I think that that space between the sessions, regardless of whether the dog is just going to be someone's family pet or whether it's going to be a special forces military working dog, the space between the sessions is relevant. It's different for all of them. But I think having people understand that there are things that you do and there are protocols around training the dog and they're very different from what the, the session of where I'm teaching the dog, that abstinence or you know, where, where I'm teaching the dog, don't do this even though you want to because I, I, you know, I want you to do something else and I'll pay you really well if you do. That's a different thing from like, hey man, just don't go crazy in the house. Like just don't wreck shit. Walk around, do whatever you want. I don't care where you are. Just don't tear apart my couch while you're doing that. That's a different thing. And I don't think there is much good instruction on that. First of all, I want to say thank you because that, that bit you put about at the beginning when you talked about the dog looking to you for guidance, like that's, mm. that's something that's been missing from my rap on that for a while. Like that's obviously, I, I believe it. Uh, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh yeah, shit. I don't know why I haven't said that out loud before to anybody, but yes, that's obviously a huge part of it. So you just pointed out, pointed out a hole in my teaching. So you're me a dollar. Uh, Oh, okay. Uh, is that Australian dollar or US dollar? Either one, I accept both. Okay. But yeah, I think one of the things I've been saying for, for a very long time is that the big secret of the training world is most dogs don't need training. They need a lifestyle change. Yeah. But the thing is knowing how to live with a dog, there's no better way to teach somebody how to live with a dog than to teach them how to train a dog. Mm -hmm. And so that's another value of obedience, of, of doing obedience is again, the owners are learning how to adjust their dog's behavior again in a low stakes environment where the worst mistake is, oh, I fucked up my sit and I got to rebuild it. Not my dog is afraid to come when I call them. I think, again, I always tell my clients, part of my goal here is to install a little bit of dog trainer brain in you. Mm -hmm. And so the, the social walk is going called it. You tell your, your clients you want the dog to stay socially connected. The term I use, and I think I stole this from Jay, is I want 10%, at least 10% of their attention at all times. Mm -hmm. Like if they can be 90% focused on anything else, as long as there's 10% of their attention. And you ask people how they do, like that's entirely subjective. Like, how's your dog doing? I think he's paying attention. I feel pretty good about it. Like there's no measuring standard there. 
right? But if you go sit and the dog's like, no, I'm going to go fuck off over here. That's an objective failure. You can't say, I think he sat, like there's no confusion, right? Like maybe he sat crooked, but it's still a sit, right? Maybe he sat in three seconds instead of two seconds or whatever, right? But there's an objective measure. So when we teach an obedience, the, our owners know exactly how successful they were. There's not relying on their feeling about it. And I think that's a really important point that allows them to learn how effective they are. And, uh, and then when they go, I don't like this, I want this to be better. Okay. Let's talk about some strategies we can use to make that happen. And it's not just telling them what to do. It's telling them why we're doing it. So they begin to see how to think like a trainer. And I make that clear at the very beginning. I want you to learn to think like a trainer because my goal is for you to never need me again. Like that day that your dog has a problem, you go, oh, I know how to fix it. That's when I've done my work. You know, Dick Russell used to say to his clients, he goes, you've paid me already, but I haven't earned my money. I don't earn my money until you, that day you look at the dog and go, this old dog ain't half bad. Mm. And that, right. And I would say that I haven't earned my money until that day that when your dog does something that is unexpected or confusing, you don't have to shoot me an email or pick up the phone. You go, oh, I know how to solve that. That's when I've succeeded. That's the most important part. And obedience is a great vessel to do that. It's the best vessel we have to do that. Honestly, I've been doing this 30 years, like I said before, and never once in 30 years has someone called me up. Well, one time, there's one exception, and that was a professional trainer who was looking to clean up something. But other than that, no one has called me to say, my dog doesn't sit fast enough. That has mm-hmm. never been the initial phone call. It's always my dog's jumping on the kids. My dog's dragging me down the street. It's always some behavior that makes life unlivable with the dog. And none of those are about precision. They're they're million dollar behaviors, mate. Seriously. Like people in the industry don't realize that that's where the big money is coming from. And it still is. And it will continue to until we're all in the ground. This is where the bucks come for people. You might not like doing it and you might, you know, shun it and say, oh, it's repetitive and it's the same thing. But I mean, that's where the money is coming from for most dog trainers. So if you want to get your hands dirty in this type of work, that's where the work is coming from. There's a couple of things I wanted to chat about with you, Chad. I wanted to back up for a second and talk about early in the conversation, you were talking in and around terminology. Pat, myself, many of the other peers in the industry have identified that we do have a terminology issue in the industry currently. Everybody's trying to make up this unicorn word. They're coming out with new phrases. They're plagiarizing other people's material and changing the words deliberately so they sound like they invented the language themselves. But the problem is, if we don't have consistency and reliability in the terminology we're using, we start getting very far away from people being able to standardize what is actually needed in the industry. Then they don't know how to communicate with each other. To give an example of that, non-dog training related, There's been some really yucky, woke shows on Netflix and some of the other online streaming platforms. It's all about how badly people communicate with each other these days, how poorly understood we are. Instead of people having the freedom to talk to people and to say things that need to be said, it's always this roundabout language that never goes anywhere. It's so cyclical and it's horrible. It's just yuck the way people are starting to talk to each other now. And the same thing is creeping into the dog training industry. This constant denial of using terms and phrases and what we actually need to do to actually get a dog trained sometimes. We're being guilted away from talking about things or guilted away from using tools or guilted away from using a a system that needs to be used for a type of dog. And therefore, when we start looking at a lot of dogs that are hitting pounds and rescue centers these days, 
the systems that are being developed now or spoken about are failing all of these other dogs because now there's no way to train these dogs anymore. Not that anybody wants to use or talk about because that's too hard. It's too formalized. It's too compulsive to actually use a method that actually works for those dogs. You know, everybody is now worried about shutting dogs down all the time. And I don't like shutting dogs down either. I don't want to address a system that focuses on shutting dogs down but I do want to focus on some systems that focus on shutting down some behaviors that dogs are doing, because if they continue to do those behaviors in the home, they are going to get destroyed. I interviewed a girl for a training position the other day, and she was working at a local welfare agency. And I said, what made you leave? Can I ask? And she said, yeah, they're just destroying dogs hand over fist. They're trying to rescue them. They're trying to do anything with them, but you can't do anything with these dogs anymore. You're not allowed to take them out and give them corrections. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. Because now we're getting into a system where people are saying, oh, it's only this way to train a dog. Or we're starting to feel afraid to talk about a measure that really needs to fix a certain behavior that a dog is doing. I know trainers are still doing it. The problem that I see and the thing that I really frown about, and I think the thing that causes a lot of concern for trainers, is when you do watch people online doing it, they're just doing such a horrible job of it and filming some of the most deplorable forms of training that aren't anywhere near what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about using compulsion or using pressure or using a corrective technique or anything like that, it's not replicative of what I see people doing online. That's just horrible work. Bad work is bad work by uneducated people time and time again. But we really, really need to start focusing on being able to create some standardized industry language that people can draw from and assist the future generations that are coming through in training? Man, that's a tough question. And I agree with you, I think, at least in principle, I think we have another terminology problem too in this. The terminology that that people who came before us created is dog shit. You know, the, the choice of the word punishment versus reinforcement was, I believe, political choice in sense. Mm-hmm. We should talk about increasers and decreasers right? Reinforcement sounds better than punishment. And so there's an emotional baggage attached to the word punishment. And uh, with the way we're using punishment in behavior has no relation to how we use it in common usage. Like if you commit a crime, you get you're punished by being sent to jail. Nobody gives a shit if the likelihood of you reduce, of you repeating that behavior is reduced. They want to make sure you've been penalized appropriately. The punishment has to fit the crime. And so there's no concern for whether it actually reduces behavior, which is what the the definition and behavior of punishment is supposed to be. So Mm. we've got dog shit language that we're trying to work with. Mm. And that is part of the problem. Like if we want to talk about using punishment, we have to spend five minutes explaining what we mean about punishment. And even there's still an emotional baggage to that word. Like we're fighting uphill battle. I think I, I was working on an article this week. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it, it starts with imagine that no one had had ever invented the quadrants. How would we describe our training? What words would we use? And the the idea is that uh, we are always making things more or less rewarding for the dog. That's what we do. We're moving them along this continuum of whether I like this or I don't like this. I can make a dog less motivated by giving them less food for getting a bad rep and more food for getting a right right rep. Is that reinforcement or punishment? I don't care. Like. I have been in conversations with PhDs in behavior arguing over whether a specific technique was positive reinforcement or negative punishment or whatever. Like, like at some point in time, it becomes largely arbitrary, mm. I think, because uh, we can't read inside the dogs. Like Skinner was right. We, it's a black box. We don't know what's going on in them and we're, and we're guessing. Um, 
So I do agree with you that we need consistent terminology. And I try to use the terminology that is agreed upon whenever possible, especially when I'm talking to professionals. But it always comes with these caveats that, like I said, like if you want to call that leash game I was talking about negative reinforcement, I'm not going to argue with you. I just don't know for sure the dog perceives it as negative reinforcement. Not in the sense, or I should say, like I had an argument with somebody after the low-level e-collar thing came out, after that controversy started, the conditioning e-collars with food started. I had a conversation with the guy who was uh, on the other side of that controversy than I was. And he said, if the dog wants to turn the pressure off, it's aversive. And if that's the assumption, negative reinforcement means the pressure is aversive. I don't think that's a fair assumption because you, if you want to call what I'm doing with that leash game, negative reinforcement, fine, because it's true. The cessation of the pressure indicates a reward. I think it's more of a marker. That's like my click. The slack leash is like the click. He's working for the click. So you could call leash pressure an intermediate bridge or a keep going signal, or as Pat would say, stay in behavior and the slack as a click. Mm -hmm. as a success marker and then the food follows you could frame it that way how's the dog frame it i don't know i have to guess but the point is is that if you want to call that negative reinforcement i don't have a problem with that but if you carry with that definition the insistence that therefore it must be unpleasant for the dog that's where i'm going to take issue if the dog is working to turn the pressure off i get it that's negative reinforcement but that does not require that that pressure be aversive that's the point that i'm getting at and so the language comes with this baggage and so how do we navigate that? I don't know. I don't know. But I think if we describe our training more and I'm trying to make this choice more rewarding and this choice less rewarding, I flex between quadrants all the time in my sessions. Like here's an example. If the animal gets less of a reward than he expects, there's a massive drop in dopamine levels, more so than if he gets no reward. So in that sense, giving a dog a reward, one piece of kibble for a sloppy sit versus a handful of kibble for a sharp one, that is causing a negative psychological effect on the dog. I'm still using positive reinforcement. Mm. I'm still reinforcing the behavior, but I am affecting him negatively psychologically. We don't have language for that. I think in that instance, it then, like, I, I agree with you totally. Like, sometimes it's not clear, but what he does next will determine, like, what quadrant you used because you know that's how operant conditioning works is it doesn't it, it's it's mm. not retrospective it it's forward conditioning so like if you give him one piece because he did poorly and he's pissed off by that one piece and decides to act better the next time you still we're using positive reinforcement if he then says well fuck it i'm not sitting anymore because it's not worth it for that effort then it turns out that that was positive punishment you don't know until the next rep and I agree with you, it's semantics. I agree with that it's semantics. And, and a smart trainer will know the inputs to give to the dog to get the output that they're looking for. And, and I agree entirely that that's not always obvious which quadrant that is. I think that that's why I did my logo the way that I did. Because like, not that I actually understand quantum physics, but it's similar in that it's your reinforcer is everywhere. And like which quadrant you're in, is all of them and none of them at once. And when you observe it, that's where it is. But once it's observed, then it's stuck like that. But it's actually a very fluid thing. All of them are in play all of the time. And I think anything that you're seeing from your dog in the space even between the repetitions is guided by its experiences of the past. And you know, when you bring a dog into a room, the fact that it isn't jumping on people in that room might be because it's been punished for doing that in the past. And so that punishment is in effect in that moment. That is 
the observable outcome of punishment. But if you didn't know the punishment was there, you can't know that it's the observable outcome of punishment. It just is what the dog is doing. And because we can't appreciate all of the inputs that go into the dog's understanding, we also can't appreciate that all of the behaviors that the dog is displaying are the result of either the dog's inherent desires or the inputs of the past, the operant processes of yesterday guide the the behaviors of today. That's kind of the, what I'm getting at, I think, is like, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying either. But the, the problem is, is that I've said for a long time, the quadrants aren't real. And what I mean by that, it's like temperature is real, degrees are not. Right? Okay. Degrees measure something that exists. But, you know, some people use Fahrenheit, some people use Celsius. And if we don't know that, we can have some terrible confusions about the weather outside, mm-hmm. right? Because 100 degrees to you and 100 degrees to me are very different, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, but we're both describing a real thing. The temperature is absolute. Mm. And so quadrants are a, a convenient way we use to describe what we do, right? And Or I should say they're supposed to be a convenient way to describe what we do. I find them to be terribly inconvenient and terribly clunky. And that's why I said mostly what I, the way my head thinks when I'm training a dog, what's going on in my head is, am I making this a more or less rewarding experience for the dog? Mm. And that's kind of how I think. I want the poor reps to be less enjoyable than the great reps. The obvious way to do that, well, again, another way, like when we start talking about value, right? Like, like the dog will always do the thing that's most rewarding. And so the most basic way we do that is reinforcement makes things more rewarding, punishment makes things less rewarding, right? But there's all sorts of other ways we can affect that adjustment, like scarcity. I can make something more rewarding by making it more scarce, like box feeding, Mm. right? That creates a scarcity model where the dog is like, oh, I've got to eat now Mm. because it might not be available, right? Or same thing, if I let a dog interact with a lot of dogs to where a point it's no big deal. Then when they see a dog on the walk, they're like, oh, hey, that's a dog. Hey, what's up? Whereas a dog who never gets to interact with other dogs, that becomes more rewarding. So I've reduced the value of seeing other dogs by providing more access to it. Or I've increased the value of food by reducing access to it. Those aren't punishment or reinforcement, not in the terms that we're talking about in quadrants, but it's an important part of what we do. And so I, I get like... I feel like when we start thinking in quadrants, like, and I do think in them sometimes, I'm not saying I don't, but I think it causes us to get stuck into a mindset. I'm either working in reinforcement or punishment. And we tend to focus on one half of the equation by design because it's a binary system. I don't pretend to have a better model, except what I, in my head, I'm just trying to think, how do I make this more rewarding or less rewarding as opposed to how do I reinforce or punish this behavior? I feel like that's more clear from my thinking and I can't speak for anybody else, but I think the quadrants get very confusing, very fast for a lot of people. And it's, there's so many people who just shut down when you start talking about them. And I think that's a shame. I think we should all have a basic understanding of the quadrants. I'm surprised at how many trainers are proud to not understand them. Mm. Right? Like, like I don't need to know that shit. I just train a dog. Like that's, I'm not defending that kind of mindset. I think we should know as much as we can about our craft because that's what professionals do. If the end of my knowledge means the end of a dog's life, then I'm morally obligated to (laughs) constantly be expanding the end of my knowledge, Mm. right? For example, 90% of what I do, I feel like is more in the classical conditioning model than the operant conditioning model anyway. I'm changing how the dog feels about events, not not what I want them to do. The dog feels something different when he sees another dog. He behaves differently. I don't have yeah. to tell him what I want him to do. I want to change the way he feels. And when we're stuck in, when we're stuck in an operant mindset, 
which is where the quadrants live. But we're stuck in that mindset. We miss those opportunities. Like, I don't want to reward the wrong behavior. Fuck it. Reward it. Put throw food in that dog's face when he's barking at the other dog. He will get better. I promise you. Keep doing it. Right. But, but I'm reinforcing the wrong behavior. No, that behavior's already been reinforced. That horse is out of the barn. It's not coming mm-hmm. back. Now we have to change the way he feels. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, like, to me, it's just like, it's a complex question. And I'm not disagreeing with anything you guys are saying. I agree 100%. We have a, a mess of terminology. I'm just not sure if the terminology that we inherited from behaviorism is the best terminology going forward. I agree with you, mate. Some of that terminology or some of the old things that we learned is hot dog water. It's just terrible. And just as the conversation was starting to get interesting, we're going to leave it there in part one of this episode and be back soon with part two with Chad Mackin, Pat Stewart and Glenn Cook. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, do all that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then go to another one and do it there as well. Jump onto our email list. It's new. It's sparkly. It's exciting. We haven't sent any emails yet, but there's links in the description. You know what? As soon as I finish this, I'll post it again in the group. We want to keep growing that list. We want to keep developing the community. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. A couple bucks a month gets you a backlog of information going back years, as well as new stuff going forward pretty much every month. Uh, we also do a live stream once a month in there, you know, and if you wanted to give as much as you want, you can, you could buy me a Lamborghini if you like. I want a Bentley. A Bentley. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go a Bentley too. I wouldn't want to, I don't want us to have different cars. No, we, we got to have matching Bentleys. Everything has to be fair. His and his Bentleys. Uh, yeah, his and his. So that we can drive them to our little bed and breakfast that we That's have right. together. That's right. Yes. When we run All away right, together so, eventually. <laughs> yeah. So buy me a Bentley. Um, get Glenn one too. The other thing you could do is get into spring and get yourself a t-shirt. Yep. Why not? They're Why not? Fucking rad. Get a Canon Paradigm t-shirt. Everyone loves when we see you wearing those out. Yep. The other thing, you could get yourself some socks, underpants, and water bottles. They're coming soon. <laughs> and uh, if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is get on the email list. But you could also jump into the Facebook discussion group. There's about 10,000 people in there all being very nice to each other day to day. Or you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye.